Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The South China Seas is a region that is in hot contestation, important to many surrounding countries in terms of territory, resources, and trade routes. Here to discuss who owns the waters of the South China Seas, uh, two academics of most lethal cutting. Thank you for joining me both today. Nick Bisley, Professor of International Relations and Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. Good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. And Dr. Beck Strutting, Lecturer in International Relations in the Department of Politics and Philosophy. Welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, for the sake of the geographically disadvantaged, where is the South China Sea? Who does it matter to and why does it matter? Broad canvas. Start off there and then we'll drill down a bit. The South China Sea is generally described as the body of water that encompasses at the southernmost point, the Indonesian archipelago and the Straits of Malacca, and goes up to the west of the Philippines, to the east of Vietnam, and generally is thought of as stopping at roughly Hainan, which is that large island off the southern part of China. So it's a hugely important body of water in the sense that all of the shipping of goods, energy, resources that's traveling in and out of Eastern Asia, mm. that's going to the Middle East, Western Europe and beyond. So whether it's the energy, oil and gas that's fueling China, Korea, Japan's growth, or whether it's all those finished goods, the Apple iPhones, the washing machines, the cars that are going out for consumers, all travels through there. So it's a hugely important uh, shipping lane. Uh, it's also hugely important because it's strategically quite significant. So if you're interested in commanding the maritime lanes of communication, because it's such an important artery of global commerce, this is a body of water that's of great strategic significance. And of course, if you're the United States Navy, which between the mid-1940s and roughly now has had unparalleled maritime hegemony over this stretch of water, it's quite useful because you can keep an eye on China and you can keep an eye on whatever else is going on in all of those countries. Mm. And then finally, it's thought to be pretty rich in hydrocarbons. So oil and gas, principally gas, is thought to sit underneath the sea. And historically, although less now, historically it's been quite a rich fishing grounds, although they've been pretty heavily fished of late, so they're, they're not quite as well supplied as they were in the past. So mm. this is a body of water that is pretty important. Who's interested in it? Who isn't interested in it? It's a great piece of water, but... Um, the, <laughs> you sound like a salesman. <laughs> I'm convinced. It? Well, because it's really important for, from a trading point of view, so if you're whether you're a Japan uh, or a Korea who receives things that go through it, you've got an interest in it, or if you're Australia, all the Pilbara iron ore that's going to China, that sails through, at the moment, the South China Sea. More immediately, there are the countries who have claims about the borders in, as we said before, the status of the water, who can fish, who can drill for oil and gas, who's got the rights to that stuff. There are six countries who are claiming all or part of the South China Sea. So there's the People's Republic of China, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, and footnote, Taiwan also has a claim. We tend not to talk about Taiwan. Taiwan's claim and China's claims are, are identical. They have a minor difference as to who should be running China, but that's a sort of <laughs> side side concern. So, that's, a, that's an entirely different podcast. Yeah. In direct competition, there are those five slash six countries. Mm. And then, of course, there's the key stakeholders like the United States, like Japan, like Korea, uh, and the rest of us who have a lot of indirect skin in the game. Mm. And all claims seem to be overlapping to some extent. So somebody will claim a set of islands, but another country will claim the same set of islands. Uh, this is one that challenges the medium of the podcast. You kind of need a map to lay it all out because it's a pretty <laughs> complex patchwork quilt. Well, we could say that there are three key sets of islands or maritime features that are 
contested. So this is talking about territory or low-lying elevations. So the Scarborough Shoal is contested by China and the Philippines. Uh, China has occupied the Scarborough Shoal since 2012. Then you have the Paracels and the Spratleys, uh, and they are contested by China, Taiwan and Vietnam. The territorial claims are overlapping, but not all of the six states have the same claims. Sure. And they differentiate from territory, which concerns sovereignty, you know, who owns what, and also between maritime entitlements. So who gets the right to use resources in the water column. So contests over exclusive economic zones, as well as continental shelf claims. So uh, who gets the right to exploit oil and gas? Yeah, yeah. And how have these claims been enforced over time then? I mean, generally, I suppose it'd be a standoff kind of thing. You know, if you leave the islands alone, I'll leave the islands alone. But that isn't always effective these days. You've got freedom of navigation operations going through just so America can show a bit of muscle in the area, I suppose. So what kind of different plays are being happened here? Well, China's been quite assertive in claiming island territory, particularly in artificial island buildings. China has built over uh, 3,000 acres of artificial islands in the South China Sea, which is, you know, really about territorialising some of this maritime area. And part of the issue is, is that these islands are not considered to be islands under international law for the purposes of deciding maritime jurisdiction. So the United States in particular, has been conducting freedom of navigation operations to challenge China's assertion that these are legitimate islands that it claims sovereignty over and that there is a 12 nautical mile territorial sea China is entitled to by virtue of their sovereignty over these islands. Mm. Mm. I mean, China's been the most visible and ambitious in its island building activities, but all of the claimants have occupied to some degree, some of their claims, with the notable exception of Brunei that claims two islands. Everyone else has got troops or some facility there trying to enforce or make good their claim. And it basically goes back to the old international legal principle that if you if you do not enforce your claims mm. when they're contested, you effectively forfeit them. These disputes go back decades. And over time, we figure out a kind of modus vivendi and people kind of just get on with the business of getting on with things. But where we're at now is a quite a heated period that was really teed off by some UNCLOS claims where Vietnam and the Philippines sent into UNCLOS, that's the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which essentially tries to provide an agreed-upon set of principles to manage what goes on at sea. The Philippines and Vietnam said, okay, this is the extent of our claims. In response, China said, well, and issued this map with the famous nine-dash line, which is essentially a U all the way around it, makes some vague statements on the back of it that essentially says nothing that's in accordance with what anyone understands international law to be about sovereignty on the seas, mm. um, and then lodges it. And the rest of us will go, hmm, what does that actually mean? We're not sure. So you've seen China do this range of different things to make good on their claims from having this map of ambiguous provenance, building stuff, doing things. So they send off oil rigs to do exploratory drilling, They've named Sanshar, which is this island in the Paracels in the northwest of the body of the sea, they've named it the administrative capital of China's maritime interests, which is essentially saying, we see this, we're doing the business of administering the South China Sea. Mm. So it's this kind of multi-layered 
set of activities which are trying to act as if they have made good on their claims. So whilst no one's invading and doing good old-fashioned battlefield stuff, all of the countries are jostling in differing ways to try to make good on what they're doing. The big challenge, of course, is that no one's got the resources that China's got, and China's been operating on a scale that dwarfs everyone else. And of course, footnote one, all of the claimants have China as their number one economic trading partner. Yes, so you don't want to annoy them. Are they at the point of civilian populations? And they're at the point of tourism as well. There's about 2,000 permanent Chinese inhabitants of the Paracels, but they're kind of islands. They're islands that you and I would understand islands to be. As Beck was saying, a lot of this other stuff aren't islands in any conventional sense. So there's a lot of grey area around what is an island, what is a rock, what is a low-lying elevation? And these matter in terms of maritime entitlements because if it's an island, you can generate a 12 nautical mile territorial sea sure. plus potentially a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone mm-hmm, plus mm-hmm. potentially a 200 nautical mile continental shelf. But if they're rocks, they only generate a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. And if they're low-lying elevations for the purposes of UNCLOS, they generate nothing. So there's a real con- test over the nature of these features, which matters for things like fishing, it matters for oil and gas exploration, it matters for the use or the exploitation Mm. of maritime resources. The other key thing is that a lot of these islands, particularly in the Spratleys archipelago, most of which aren't actually islands in any conventional sense, these things are often within a few hundred metres of each other. Mm. And so that even if you could convince everyone who is interested that you're suddenly created several hundred acre island with a three kilometre runway and a deep water port is an island. You've then got the shoal that's just over the way and you're trying to figure out, well, where does the maritime boundary exist between the two of you? You may have a nominal exclusive economic zone, but it doesn't mean a great deal, particularly if you don't recognise the other's claim. So it's a real kind of real mess in that regard. And Mm. that's why we've got this sort of overlaid onto these sovereignty claims is this concept of historic rights, which China sort of sees as it's an ambit claim to use of the South China Sea, the space. But this is not recognised under international law. So the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling, when Philippines took China to that tribunal. The ruling basically threw that claim out. Vietnam has tried the historical connection argument. Vietnam and China are the two that make the biggest claim. And Vietnam also has this slightly ambiguous big arc that goes out from Vietnam, essentially encompassing the entirety of the sea. Mm. And no one's quite sure exactly what they mean by that. But they've also tried the historic rights argument, you know, pulling up pottery from the bottom of the seafloor and saying, oh, this is this shows us that the Vietnamese have been using this since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. So they were, oddly enough, disappointed when this decision came out saying historic rights are, have no standing. And incidentally, the Japanese were also not happy because they've made a historic rights argument about the Senkakus, but that's a separate podcast. <laughs> but it's also a separate issue. History matters if you're talking about sovereign territory. Yeah. If you're making a claim to an island or a rock like Senkakus, that is subject to a different set of law than maritime entitlements. That is subject to acquisition, which can include things like treaties, you know, when treaties were drawn, uh, whether treaties in the past have given ownership of islands or rocks to one party or another, effectivities, so effective occupation. Has there been a history of one state effectively occupying Mm -hmm. um, these particular land features? 
things get quite blurry when it comes to the importance of history. UNCLOS is about geography. When it comes to determining EZ, when it comes to determining continental shelf claims, it's about geography, not history. But what we're seeing in the South China Sea generally is these differences between different sorts of contests becoming conflated and confused and history now becomes important in the justifications of states, not just for land, but for the sea. China threw out any ruling that came out anyway, so it's mm. it's a ruling with no teeth. That's international law for you in a nutshell. But China didn't participate in the procedures, said it didn't see it as legitimate, and then quite enjoyed issuing maps that coloured the world in red and blue. Essentially, countries that were coloured in one colour were countries that saw this ruling as wrong, okay. and countries that thought it was right were coloured in the other colour. Their point was that the vast majority of the countries in the world didn't see it as legit, mm. um, whereas the small nominal group of countries that did were all you know, American allies and likely you know, kind of doing this all as a great big stitch-up. Mm. Um, so there's been a kind of argument about the argument to try to get legitimacy on your side, yeah. because mm. in essence, yeah, there isn't an enforcement mechanism there. You know, China's challenge to this ruling goes to the weaknesses of UNCLOS as an order-generating mechanism. Now, China's in a, in a very strong position in terms of control and command of the South China Sea and with all of these um, sort of maritime land features that has been accumulating over the last few years. Part of that is because there wasn't pushback. There wasn't the kinds of resistance that would be required to put a, a stop to these sorts of activities. Mm. They're terraforming, in essence, if you want to take your aliens metaphor. Yeah, they're building runways, they're military installations, I mean, observation posts. And they're doing this at a long way from China. So mm. that to do this is a pretty significant piece of engineering. And mm. you don't just you know flick a switch and bang, there it is, or do it under cover of darkness one night and there you go, you've got a deep water port. This was plainly visible, everyone knew what was going on whilst it was happening, and yet they didn't do a thing mm. at all. And if you'd wind back the clock and sat down with Obama's national security team and said, you know, the Chinese are going to build 3,000 acres or whatever it is of, of artificial islands, three-kilometre runways, deep water ports, the ability to project significant amounts of force in contested territory in the South China Sea, and you won't do a thing about it. Everyone looked at you like you were, you know, like you were Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> To me, that was, as Beck said, the most striking thing that from a Chinese point of view, how do you interpret that? You interpret that as... A green light. Acquiescence. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, okay, we're, mm. we're, we're content with this. And then, of course, by the time it was done, then we had Admiral Harry Harris coming out to Australia saying, oh, China's building a great wall of great sand. Great wall of sand. Well, yep. it's not, they're not building it. They've built it. They've mm. built it. It's done. And yeah. you didn't do anything about it. And only now are you beginning to do things. One thing we do know now is that there was a lot of tension behind the scenes in the US between particularly the Department of Defense that wanted to push back more firmly mm. and a White House that said, no, we're managing China basically by accommodating China. Mm. Um, and I think when we look back at this in 10 or 15 years' time, this will be seen as a, a key turning point in American strategy in the region where America basically decided to not contest things and that will be a key point. And I think there's a lot of regret about it already to say that was probably a mistake. I think the signals out of Washington is that it's too late to go back now, can't roll back the gains that China has made at this point, mm. and that this was a, a strategic error to let things get to this point. It'd kick off a major conflict if they did try to push back, but maybe unofficially at this point, is the South China Sea just ceded to China? I don't think so, not entirely. It's not 
like, for example, China can just go out into the seas and unilaterally drill for oil, for mm. example. It's not quite to the point where, you know, UNCLOS is completely irrelevant in the area. Uh, and in fact, ASEAN and China are negotiating a code of conduct. The question about these sorts of dispute resolution mechanisms, though, these sorts of negotiations about um, the South China Sea is whether this is a ploy to just keep the talk going while yeah. China keeps taking well, yeah, my, uh, in the South China my Sea. Fo- my follow-up to that is, you know, if China did decide to go and drill for oil and what have you, is anybody going to stop them? I mean, nobody well, stopped them from building the islands. At, at the moment, they're more engaged in joint development negotiations with the Philippines. Mm. So rather than unilaterally going out and drilling for oil, it's about legitimising some of their claims by engaging in a shared regime for development. Mm -hmm. So Philippines under the Duterte administration... Are big uh, fans of China? Yeah, it seems so, yes. Uh, At least the president is a big fan Mm. uh, of China and has been engaging in these discussions over joint development. But there has been, you know, quite a lot of pushback from uh, people in the Philippines because it appears that, you know, this is a compromise of the Philippines' sovereign entitlements to oil and gas. You know, it's not just China that has issues with energy supply. It's also the Philippines. These are very important assets for both states. Mm. It's not to the point where China can just go out and do whatever it wants in the South China Sea. But importantly, China has also prevented Vietnam and certain corporations from drilling for oil and gas in what Vietnam claims as its continental shelf area. It's not quite to the extent where China's got control over the South China Sea, but it is very much in charge of what's going on and Mm. it can prevent other states from utilising, and not just other states, smaller states. You know, there's a real power asymmetry here as well, preventing these smaller states from exploiting their maritime entitlements. I think Beck's exactly right. They haven't won the South China Sea, but they're winning Mm. and they're setting the terms. That's the interesting thing. Everyone else, and certainly the United States, are are reactive and responsive, whereas China's the one who's been basically taking the proactive steps and setting the terms of the debate. The other thing just to remember about how China approaches these things is, in general, they want to avoid being too provocative. So sailing an oil rig out into highly contested territories and plonking it down and extracting the gas is generally avoid doing that if they have to, and instead go down the route of joint development, obscuring people, making things messy and blurry and, and murky. The exception to that, of course, is the island building, where doing this stuff, you know, going and building thousands of acres of islands and contested territories, that's pretty provocative. They've done that. They got away with it. They probably won't do anything of that scale again. Mm. And they're now reverting back to a more measured pace. And mm. the other thing that they all always point to is to go back to the legal ruling, the case the Philippines brought, they just turn around and say, so America, have you signed UNCLOS yet? Oh, you haven't? Ah, ah, really, you know. And no amount of, we adhere to the rules of UNCLOS, go, yeah, yeah, have you signed it? Mm. Have you signed it? No, you haven't, have you? Here, 
representatives of the United States try to justify this lack of ratification, but it just doesn't fly. They want to unsign it at at various points, which raises the interesting question, can you unsign something you haven't ratified? (laughs) And and what is the point of that? But part of the issue is that, you know, China's made this ambit claim around historic rights around the Nine Dash Line. So these sorts of sort of conciliatory um, measures around joint development, around a code of conduct, is working to legitimise a claim that should not be legitimate at all. So even if they get 50% of what they're asking for, it's still better than what they would have received under the convention. It might not be about control and command of everything in the seas. Rather, it's about China seeing what it can get away with. Yeah, yeah. The clever thing with the strategy, which has been a very deliberate strategy of ambiguity, mm. is that apart from a degree of you know, uncertainty that people like the Earth are like, what do they really want? We don't know what they want. But it also allows you to, to declare victory whenever you want. So Nine Dash Line means, and we want that to be treated like it is Chinese territory for example, which would be weird, but let's just say that, or they wanted the Nine Dash Line to be a maritime boundary. They haven't said any of that. So they can get a whole bunch of stuff, and when they figure out that's enough, that'll probably do, and they'll remain, and we'll just leave it there as a sort of point of ambiguity. But, you know, you've started to see the Nine Dash Line appear on airline magazines and passports controversially. It doesn't actually say anything about what they are. But the fact that it's there and that it's visible in that way is kind of putting it into people's thoughts that, okay... They think of a map of the area, they know that that's Chinese territory. So it's the visibility of it. Yeah. I mean, the simple point they often say in Beijing is it's the South China Sea, isn't it? Yes, yes. And there's the dashed line that tells you that it's the South China Go Sea. Go and visit. The diving is fantastic, I hear. But the best diving is actually on a Malaysian one. There's a Malaysian island that's got a little tiny little runway on it and a little little three-star hotel that's mm. just off the coast of the Philippines, which is a long way from Malaysia. But if you like your diving in the South China Sea, it's the one to go to. I hate to get pedantic on this point, but maritime area is not territory. So that's one of the (laughs) issues that keeps coming up (laughs) again and again. So this idea that that China can own the seas is problematic because Mm. under UNCLOS and under customary international law, the seas are a global commons. UNCLOS, though, you know, UNCLOS. But all, but all I haven't of the <laughs> But the claimants have all got this sort of tension around them because all of them are playing a few different ploys and they're that's, playing a few different games at the same time. And that's right. the reason sovereignty, I think, becomes such a powerful weapon is that it's, it's got this emotive resonance mm. that's, that's, a, right. that's around kind of nationalism and identity. And in some cases, I certainly think China's got this to a degree. That's an advantage in that you can mobilise people with it, but it's also a disadvantage where you can't back down. If you said this is about sovereignty and identity and the flag and this sort of thing, it makes compromise much harder. It creates a rhetorical straitjacket. But all states, those that are claimants within the South China Sea, as well as those who have interests in the South China Sea, like the United States, like Japan, Australia and so on, they all benefit from the seas being a global commons and not under the sovereign control Mm. of one particular state. And that includes China. China needs these sea lanes of communications to be open as much as anybody else. And all states also benefit from there being a body of law that can create order over these spaces. And that really is being challenged because, as I said before, UNCLOS is about geography. Mm. It's not about sovereignty. It's not about history. It's not about nationalism. Yeah, that's the problem from a Chinese point of view is that I mean, there's two big imperatives around the South China Sea. One is strategic, that they 
don't want to be vulnerable to the US Navy, and the US Navy's been able to operate with impunity in the waters right up to China's beaches, and it's trying to stop that. But the other is this nationalistic redemption story that the party tells itself and the population about why they're there and what they're for. Mm. Um, and UNCLOS is not helpful for that agenda. But if you sit down and think, how's this going to end? From Beijing's point of view, it will end when they feel strategically secure in their maritime approaches and when their national redemption story, they can feel like they've achieved most of what they want. And that's not going to sit comfortably with UNCLOS in the short run, nor in the long run. Well, thank you both for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Please leave a review. We always love to hear from our listeners. You can follow both Beck and Nick on Twitter. Beck is at Beck Strating and Nick is at Nick Bisley. And you can follow La Trobe Asia. We are at La Trobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening. <laughs>